That's Acts chapter 16, verses 11 through 24. So setting sail from Troas, we made voyage to Samothrace, and the following day, Neapolis, and from there, Philippi, which is the leading city in the district of Macedonia, and a Roman colony. We remained in the city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her whole household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain from fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. When they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them in prison ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. This is God's Word. R.J. R.G. Letourneau is uh, 14 years old when he dropped out of the sixth grade, and a decade later, married, he and his wife were flat broke. His sister as a missionary challenged him to make a real difference with his life for God and for neighbor, for others. Letourneau thought this meant giving up his real love, which was dirt-moving machinery. Giving that up to become a missionary. Because that's what you did when you heard about God. He prayed, Lord, if you help me with the burden of my life, with this mountain of debt, with the trouble of my marriage, if you help me, I'll do anything you want me to to do. And the next day, his prayers were answered when he met with his pastor. That's what happens when you meet with your pastor. That's a side note. Not really part of the story. But after listening for a while to Letourneau, his pastor said, R.G., God needs preachers and missionaries, but he needs businessmen too. Your business can be your pulpit. And so finally, guilt-free, Letourneau continued tinkering with his earth-moving machinery, and he proved to be a remarkably innovative inventor and manufacturer. He started manufacturing heavy machinery, heavy construction machinery, a company that grew to be enormously successful. In 1935, he and his wife decided to dedicate 90% of the company's profits to God and to neighbor. Letourneau explained this decision, saying, I pray... Not about how much of my money to give to God, but about how much of God's money I'm going to keep for myself. Because it's ultimately His. 
During World War II, his company built 70% of all earth-moving equipment used by the Allied forces. In fact, there's not a piece of heavy construction equipment manufactured today that does not find its origin at H.G. Letourneau's drafting table. Whether you own your own business, whether you contribute to a, a firm that's large or small, whether you earn a salary or you've purchased a permit for someone to help you manage your home and your children, you are in business and you are needed there. It is God who has put you in that place and it is your pulpit from which you can speak and show Jesus to others as you deal with them. We have three examples of this in our passage this morning of people dealing in business. Two are are very positive examples. Lydia, as well as Paul and Silas. One is quite negative, the owners of the slave girl. But through each of these examples, here's the message we see. Here's the message in a nutshell through each of these examples. It's this, that the gospel confronts us to take a loss for a far greater gain. The gospel confronts us to take a personal loss for a far greater personal gain. The good news about Jesus confronts us with our examples this morning. Each of them have to perform a cost-benefit analysis on the fly. And yes, it involves their career, it involves their wallets. They must choose where they will take a loss and where they will take gain. And guys, we are confronted with the same choice through their examples. So let's get right into it. First, let's look at the example of Lydia. Whenever Paul visits a new place, as he does here, he finds what those in the military call a bridgehead. A bridgehead is a place behind enemy lines uh, where troops can establish a small, defensible stronghold. The place for Paul where he establishes that stronghold that's kind of safe behind enemy lines where people haven't yet heard or trusted Christ is a synagogue, which is also known in these times as a place of prayer. And that's what he thought he would find in Philippi. See, ten men were required back then to establish a synagogue. If you wanted a synagogue, you had to get ten men together, and that meant you had one. But here Paul finds only women who'd come together to worship Yahweh. Lydia was often referred to, or what we often refer to, as a God-fearer. You hear about God-fearers throughout Acts. These are are, are people who are are non-Jews who respected and worshipped the Jewish God, even though they weren't part of his people by birth. She kept the Sabbath. Almost certainly, she, she tried to follow the Ten Commandments. She prayed at all the prescribed hours. Because that's what a God-fearer did. And she was also a businesswoman, wasn't she? Thyatira was a city renowned for its purple dyes, which was extracted from this rare shellfish. It was very difficult to get, and so it was very valuable to get this colored dye into cloth. Thyatira belonged to the ancient city of Lydia. If that sounds familiar, of course, it's her name. In fact, this accounts for her name, which was very likely a trade name for her. In other words, she would have been known as the Lydian lady, or Lydia. She was the dealer of fine purple cloth, if you wanted that for your upholstery, or for something you would wear. So to recap, we have here in Lydia a moral businesswoman whose identity, her very name, was wrapped up in her professional success. In this state, she hears the good news about Jesus. We read, the Lord opened her heart to pay 
attention to what was said by Paul, verse 14. The word dianoxin means to open up completely. And the word translated here to pay attention to means to give oneself to. In other words, what Paul was sharing about Jesus was so attractive, she completely opens her heart to give herself over to it. It is so, God has opened her heart to the point where she just is ravished by the gospel. She gives herself completely to it. Up to this point, her relationship with God was almost certainly characterized by usefulness, which should be expected of anyone who has yet, yet, not yet known or heard about Jesus. God, you do this for me. Promise blessing on me, my business, protection for me and my life and my household. I'll try to follow the commandments. I'll try to be a good person and keep the Sabbath. And there's an exchange. There's a usefulness to God, and God is useful to you. And that characterized most likely the relationship that he had experienced with God up to that point. But when she hears about the utterly selfless sacrifice of God on her behalf, it absolutely grips her. So she's not only willing to lose anything for it, she wants to lose herself completely in the story of God's love for her. Not just give up something here or there, but lose herself completely in the sacrifice and love of Jesus Christ. So she responds, if you've judged me to be full of faith, faithful, but full of faith, that I have trusted this good news about Jesus, come to my house and stay. Now here's a single woman. She's not just inviting these people over for dinner. She's saying, I'll let you four, you four men, Paul, Silas, Timothy, Luke, have run of my house and use it for whatever purpose you need to spread this good news about Jesus, this beautiful, this attractive good news that I've given my heart over to. Use my house for those purposes. For the sake of this beautiful love story of God's sacrifice for her, she lets her home become the ministry center. We find out later in verse 40 of the same chapter that after Paul and Silas get out of prison, which we heard they get into, the whole gospel operation, the whole ministry operation in Philippi runs through her home. All of this ministry taking place there. That means people weeping. That means demons for shouting and shrieking, being cast out of people. Late nights of singing. Constant food, right? You have four men at least. Right? Permanent stains. Right? And mounting costs of taking care of all these people for a number of days. Some scholars think it's up to three or four months. But she was willing probably to let it be longer. For her, the loss of comfort and wealth is worth being bound to Jesus forever. It's just worth it for her. Everyone, guys, everyone does a cost-benefit analysis when considering the gospel, the good news about Jesus. For, for children, it usually comes down to obedience. They can say the simple words, Jesus, I know you love me, so I'll do whatever you ask me to do. Then as you get older, it gets a little more sophisticated. It's sometimes giving up a me-first lifestyle because you're so attracted to this good news about God and what he's done for you. Other times, it's, it's releasing a central but unhealthy relationship in your life for a, a, a better and greater relationship with Jesus. So you do this cost-benefit analysis. For most people, the cost comes in clusters. And for a wealthy and moral businesswoman like Lydia, I can't help but think for her, it was the cost was money, identity, and good works. Money, identity, good works. And maybe you are what I've described in Lydia, 
a wealthy business person who takes some pride in your business success, but also you consider yourself a pretty good person. I would guess that might be a lot of you living where you live and probably doing what you do. I want to share with you guys that Jesus is more valuable than this identity. He is is greater than even that good life, though it might be hard to see. And my question for you is, are you willing to lose wealth? Are you willing to lose your identity and your success? Lose the belief that your pretty goodness will make you acceptable to God on judgment day? For the greater gain of treasures in heaven, the greater gain of your new identity being a child of the living God, for the greater gain of when you stand before God on judgment day, you get to get credit for Jesus' work instead of your own good works. That is far greater. My fear is that you don't see it because maybe you are moral, because you are a business person, because you have put identity in your success. And I just want to read one scripture at the end of the Bible that might apply for you. It is a scripture that Jesus spoke to a gathered church filled with believers and non-believers. He says this in Revelation 3.17, Jesus' words. You say, the church says, the people in the church, I am rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. And you don't realize you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, naked. That when you stand before the living God, that won't do. You need Jesus. And I want you to see your need for Jesus. And I pray you do this morning. Next, confronted with a different example. We see confronted by the gospel with a lost gain scenario or the owners of this slave girl. We're told that these leaders of God's church are met, quote, quote, met by a slave girl who had the spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. Literally, this, the text says that she had a spirit of python. That's kind of weird, right? Like something you'd see in some strange cartoon that my kids watch, like Ninjago or something like that. But, but not true. At, all you parents get that. In ancient Greek culture, a pythoness was a person believed to possess the spirit of a python, a very large snake, which guarded the mythic temple of Apollo. Such people who had this spirit gave uncontrollably Uh, clairvoyant predictions and prophecies, often in like loud and strange voices. And so many people heard things about their life and about their future. So she earned money for her owners as people came to her, asked her questions about life, and money was earned as she gave answers back to them. Sometimes sporadic, sometimes not on par, but many times about the very life that they lived. So she was psychologically disturbed and socially oppressed But her owners took no pity on her. Furthermore, when the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus reaches with her, reaches into her with power, what happens to them? They get angry. So not only do they not show pity when her life changes, when she's transformed, when she becomes a whole person again, they get angry, don't they? Her gain, guys, is their loss. Which is a fascinating evidence of the reversing or or subversive effect of the gospel. Of what happens when the good news really gets into a person's life and even gets into a society or into a business environment. She is freed. Her owners are now bound. They're enslaved to the money, aren't they? She receives deep peace while her owners are now the ones who are howling mad. But that's what the gospel does. It reverses life. 
It reverses societies. It reverses even business environments. We see through these owners, if you love people, you'll use money. If you love money, you'll use people. And that's what they do. The Bible says, you can read this in 1 John 4, 7-10, through that the only way to really love selflessly, love in a way that you're not trying to get something back from someone or not to feel good about yourself, because that's still loving selfishly, isn't it? To love, to love selflessly is to intimately know a profound, self-sacrificial love on your behalf. And that's what Jesus did for us. That's what the God of the universe did for us. Otherwise, without such a self-sacrificial love, we're all just using each other for something, aren't we? Ultimately, even in good friendships, we're using each other to feel better about ourselves. We're using each other not to feel lonely. Using each other for some type of gain. Who in your life is in a vulnerable position to be exploited for gain? Who in your life is open to being used for selfish gain, for profit, whatever that might be? Let's not assume that we don't unwittingly seek gain from them. Who is that in your life? Is it an employee? Could be your own children? Could be a nanny? Could be a helper? What's interesting is this woman in our passage was probably treated very well materially. She might have her own place, well-fed, well-taken care of compared to the common person of that day, none of which justifies her being treated like a cash cow, her only being used as if she's just an outlet for money. I want to pause here and take a moment, if we can, an important tangent say a couple words about the Bible and money. Because I don't want this just to be another talk about the evils of capitalism and greed and Wall Street and this sort of thing. All right? So let me just talk about this for a minute. Number one, the Bible talks about money comparatively. What do I mean by that? Let's read a couple of scriptures here. Matthew 13, 44, Jesus says this, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and he covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all he has to buy that field. Why does he buy the field with all that he has? Because of the treasure. Because he gets to be in the kingdom of God forever. This passage is saying, among other things, that money is not bad, but compared to knowing the king of kings forever, it's far less valuable. Comparatively speaking, it's not worth anything. 1 Timothy 6.10 For the love of money is the root of of many kinds of evils, of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Money is, again, not bad. But compared to everything else worthy of love, it can be quite evil. When you, when you love money more than people, more than the kingdom of God, the things of God and God Himself, that's when it works evil in and through you into other people's lives. So, so money is only of negative value comparatively. The things we should love and the things we should value. The Bible also, here's another thing about the Bible and money. The Bible advocates voluntary redistribution of wealth. Voluntary redistribution of wealth. Ryan, are you talking about socialism? No. Voluntary redistribution of wealth. Leviticus 25. Imagine a society, this is God speaking, Leviticus 25, where property is still one's own but it's fairly sold. And once in a person's lifetime, it's given back to the most vulnerable who had to sell it because of death, debt. Acts 4, 32-36, and other places in Acts, sell oftentimes like a socialist community. 
As people are considering nothing their own, they're giving away property, but that property is still spoken of as owners, the owner's property, who voluntarily bring what they own at the apostles' feet. It is still voluntary, but it's also redistributing it. Because Jesus has been so good to these people. One problem that we get caught in today, especially in Cayman, is a system where people use gains simply to make more gains. They use the money they make simply to make more money. So we look for gains any and everywhere, which impacts those who are already at a disadvantage. We don't want to think about them. We don't want to hear about them on the news. We don't want to think about them when we drive by them. But it's true. So I don't pretend to be an expert at all in the complexities of the finance industry. I understand that hedge funds, for example, are are responsibly set up with a, a sponsor, an auditor, an administrator, directors, and shareholders. And so they're safeguarded from fraud and these sorts of things. And I understand that they work together with the goal of finding money in unusual places for low risks, high gain rewards. That's what a hedge fund does. My question for us to ponder is this. Does the trickle-down effect of making the rich richer have the unintended consequence of exploiting the poor? Let me say that again. Does the trickle-down effect of making the rich richer have the unintended consequence of exploiting the poor? It is a question I throw out to you. I'm not saying I have all the answers, but it's a question worth asking, especially where you live where you live and probably do what you do. Are we a part of systemic exploitation? And and I don't come up with this just because, because I have a a bone to pick or an axe to grind, but because it's in our passage. Notice, it wasn't only the owners who get upset, but look at verse 22. The crowd joined in in attacking them. The magistrates, in other words, the people in charge of this system, this financial system even, the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat Paul and Silas with rods. In other words, the whole system wouldn't stand for someone coming in and disturbing it with a subversive message. Some of us hear voluntary redistribution of wealth, and it makes us quiver. But isn't that what Jesus did for us? 1 Corinthians 8 said that Jesus, who was rich, made himself poor so that through his poverty we might become rich. Jesus voluntarily redistributed the wealth of heaven into our lives so that we could have the wealth of heaven forever. So what are we going to do in response? Let me move on to talk about our third party, confronted and moved by the gospel, and that's Paul and Silas. They, guys, disturbed the system because they loved a vulnerable neighbor with the gospel. Verses 20 and 21. They are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. This was the charge brought to Paul and Silas and the reason they're jailed. The Romans, see guys, had a practice of pretty much live and let live. A live and let live policy towards different religions and ethnic groups as long as it didn't disturb anyone's way of life or livelihood. Which, of course, Paul and Silas did by seeing the gospel deeply and applying the gospel to deeply impact and change this woman profoundly. It affected the socioeconomic system. Paul seems to anticipate the cost that he would have to pay to apply the power of the gospel to this woman's life. Read with me again, verses 17 through 18. Read that with me. Turn in your Bible. She followed Paul. So this woman, oppressed by an evil spirit, followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. 
This is interesting. This she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, which is probably better translated, it's kind of an unfortunate translation, I think, probably better translated disturbed, having become greatly disturbed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus to come out of her. She did this for many days, which means only when Paul becomes so troubled and disturbed at her condition does he then apply the power of the gospel to her life. It's very likely that Paul hesitated. Remember, she's going day after day, following him. Evil spirit is clear. Paul knows it. Why didn't he heal her right right away? Why didn't he go to her, lay hands on her, get a group together for prayer and heal her and, and, and cast this evil spirit out of her life? It's very likely that Paul hesitated because he knew the cost he'd have to endure for being a disturber of the system, for being a disturber of the free market greed going on in this place. Oh, for more disturbers of the system among us, my friends. Here at sunrise, NK man, would so value the good, liberating, ground-shifting news about Jesus that they would apply it to the most vulnerable, even with their business practices, even with their careers. Now, I want to encourage you, take comfort in the fact that it took Paul many days to decide that he'd take a loss for a far greater and eternal gain, not only for himself, but for this woman. Take comfort in that because you might need to mull over this word given to you this morning. It might take you a few days to consider it, to pray about it, before you take action. But when you do, here are some ways you can do so. Let me give you three. Number one, love God and neighbor more than money. And show that with your money. The only way to really show that you love God and neighbor more than money ultimately is to show it with your wallet. Show it with your business. Show it with your career. So our, our very own Dave and Stacy Ward gave me permission to share about their helper from Jamaica whose husband just weeks ago was killed, murdered, simply for being a taxi driver who had $50 of loose change in his taxi. Helpers and those in such positions are often the most alone and vulnerable but also the most ill-treated here in our society. Dave and Stacy, who, whom I know and have, have shared they were moved by Jesus, decided to pay for her to go back to Jamaica, right? Understandably. But not just that. They asked the help of their mom's playgroup, Stacy's mom's playgroup, to be a part of this, which totally, by the way, redeems mom's playgroups. This is a moment of, of levity. Sometimes I see mom's playgroups and they're Lululemon, just walking around Kamada Bay, and I'm like, what's this all about? Like, well, I, 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 really? What's, what's going on here? And, and honestly, you often see, true, people's helpers just on the side, watching the kids. Anyway, not only the help of the mom's playgroup, but us as a church to help pay for the funeral costs, which we were glad to do. We're glad to do. Why? Because loving a vulnerable neighbor is worth the cost. So that's number one. Love God, love neighbor. More than money, show it with your money. Number two, rethink your business strategy. Uh, in his excellent book, which I have here, by the way, Business God's Way by Howard Dayton, a great book to pick up, Business God's Way, Howard Dayton. You can look at it later or just borrow it from me. He shares about a Christian uh, businessman named Peter Ox who founded an investment group called Capital Three. He called it Capital Three because he had a triple bottom line. His bottom line was economic, his bo- social, and spiritual and everything he did. That's how he tried to make gains. In 2009, his, his company bought a bankrupt manufacturing business in a small rural community. That's an investment they made. It was so small, that community was, 
that the labor force couldn't accommodate the growing needs of the manufacturing business, and they needed employment that could accommodate shifting hours during the week, like 20 to 40 hours a week, and it would change every week. So he prayed, and he prayed, and he asked God to give him a creative idea to, to make a good bottom line, but also serve people and love them and help them. And so he, God gave him an idea to approach a nearby state correctional facility where inmates were earning $7 a day at the time for their work. So he offered $10 an hour as a starting wage for them to help out. He created a solution, thus, that helped the economic bottom line, the social bottom line, by helping prisoners of the state not only put money away for their families, but have skills and know-how for job opportunities when they left that correctional facility, and spiritual bottom line, as he helped foster Bible studies and life skill classes in that prison. I don't know what this would look like in your situation, but perhaps it starts with prayerfully rethinking your business strategy for a broader bottom line that includes loving God and neighbor because he so loved you. It's got to be broader than just using gain for more gain. Number three, redirect your first gain. All right, so rethink your business strategy. Also, redirect your first gain. My father um, recently retired as a businessman who for the last 18 years lived in San Diego, California, and he commuted daily to his furniture factory in Tijuana, Mexico. Anytime I share with what my dad did, that he commuted every day to Mexico, I felt like I immediately need to diffuse any notions that my dad employed child labor, for example, for inhumane working conditions or that sort of thing because... You know, he managed a plant across the border. But partly I wanted to explain that because I was so proud of my dad. He, when his business gained, he, always, he sought to do three things. Number one, empower his employees with further skills and education to do their job better and advance. Number two, make sure there were regular opportunities on site for free medical care for his employees, who often got none. And number three, giving away his first gains, his first gains to a nearby Catholic orphanage which he had me visit often, and he cared for so dearly, and still does to this day, sending me pictures constantly when I was away, whether it be at university, in Chicago, in Florida, or now here in Cayman. Guys, Jesus, the king of the universe, became poor, that through his poverty, you might become rich. Let this good news get to you, not only to your heart, but to your wallet, and to your bottom line. Let's pray. God, I know for some of us this morning, um, hearing about our careers, our finances, our wallet, those we've just employed for the sake that they're only employees, that's all who they are, that really is a hard message because um, hopefully it convicts us that we need to change. Jesus, you lost for us. You lost everything for a greater gain. You left the comfort of heaven. You left the riches of heaven to become a little seven pound, six ounce baby vulnerable to the ways of this world. I tried to be assassinated in your first couple years being alive. You risked all of it for the greater gain of pleasing your Father and knowing us forever. That was worth it to you. You didn't do it any other reason, no selfish reason other than you loved us and you just wanted to be with us forever. I just pray this morning that you would help us be willing to take a loss in our life for a greater gain that we have in you. Whatever that might look like, 
Holy Spirit, please guide us into what that looks like for each of us personally. Help us not separate our spiritual lives from our business, our church life from our bottom line and career. Because Jesus, you cared about both as we see in Acts this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.